The title for this morning's talk is Stranded. I, I could have called it Stuck, a bit more graphic. Sometimes we feel stuck. But in the end I picked Stranded because the word has a wider implication. It implies being washed ashore from the river of life, if you wish. It implies being cast away from life. It implies a feeling of, of, a feeling of strandedness, of being dissociated from things we feel entitled to as well. Now, the, also the image of the castaway, I could have called it to a castaway, the image of castaway implies it's been a shipwreck somehow, that the circumstances of life or the actions of others have put us in this quandary, have cast us, out, cast us away. Now, just to anticipate the mood, the central top, topic of this talk is that, although surely circumstances of life do contribute to our predicaments, to, to us feeling cast away, ultimately, that's the central point, ultimately it's us who choose to cast ourselves away. Let's take a look at how, at how we do it. Yesterday I covered some ground on this issue because I described how we cast ourselves away in the eye. That's certainly one very major place to cast ourselves away. We construct I, me, my, as if they were separate realms. And then this becomes an island that we come to inhabit in order to stand apart from the flow of things. As I said, I, I talked about this extensively in my talk yesterday. And, and also, in fact, come on, we are all familiar with the ways we do it anyway. How we construct who we are 
separate entity, me, Jose, whoever, on the basis of our roles, hey, here I'm the teacher, our reputation, our achievement, all our failures, failures are even stronger than successes in this. Our possessions, a bank account, whatever. We cast ourselves away in the island of who we think we figure out we are. And then, and then, curious enough, we, we feel we end up feeling stuck there. Although it's us who got us there, we are stuck in our own invention. So, again, I'm not going to go over this topic that I covered yesterday. But I just want to emphasize that this is uh, one of the, if not the primary island on which we cast ourselves away. But it is not by no means the only one. We are so terrified of the flow of life that we are seldom satisfied with just one island. What if it doesn't hold, you know? So, we contrive a whole archipelago of islands. So, now, this first part of the talk, I want to spend some time describing some of those islands. The list is enormous. I just give some examples, that's all. Consider, for instance, our homes. Our home, our physical home, becomes such an island. The sort of thing I suppose uh, we learn when we have the privilege of, as a child, as a youngster, to have your own room. We create that into a fortress. Now, I'm not saying it's not justified. In fact, under those circumstances, I, I think a child who needs uh, to establish some separation between themselves and, and their parents, uh, it's a useful island. Still, it, it, it's a first lesson in construction of fortresses. I, I'm very fond of a, an Indian film. It's a pretty old by now, perhaps. It's revived at times. A filmmaker is a man called Satyajit Rai. And the, the film is called The Home and the World. 
And it's basically about this subdivision of the Indian home into two separate realms, two separate islands. The one where the wife rules and the one where the husband rules. The wife rules over the kitchen, the bedrooms, yes, the bedrooms. All the private spaces. And the husband rules over the living room, the public space where you receive people. And whatever the usefulness of this separation might be, what ends up happening in Indian society is that women end practically incarcerated in their part of the house. And that is dramatized in that film. Homes may, in fact, be further insulated from the and hard to control impact of life by being part of gated communities. There are different degrees of gated communities. The, an extreme example of that for me is a community I've never visited. I read about it in the New York Times Magazine some time ago called Celebration, located near Orlando, Florida. And owned, in fact, by the Disney Company. Everything in Celebration has been choreographed and established in advance. There's long manuals explaining the inhabitants of the community what kinds of shrubs they are allowed to have in the garden and where should that be placed. This manual also specifies the colors of the curtains. It specifies the type of announcements you can put on, and this really put on your lawn. This primarily applies to political signage. So you're only allowed a certain size, a certain style of signs, and they're only allowed for some weeks before the election period. That's it. Every night, the streets are powered washed. Didn't know you. I, I had never seen power washing until I went to 
one of his uh, Disney um, theme parks in in the theme parks every night there's a whole crowd with big trucks power, power washing everything in sight and they start relatively early so visitors will, will see that done maybe they want to show off too you know how impeccable we are You know, when I read about celebration, what came to mind to me was what the Buddha tells about his early life when he was not the Buddha yet. He was Siddhartha. Here's this from the scriptures. He tells the monks, you know, Talk. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had a lotus pond made in our palace. One where red lotuses bloomed, the other where blue lotuses bloomed, and the other where white lotuses bloomed all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi, Varanasi being the most prestigious location in India. In those times, it still is kind of. Buddha goes on, my turban was from Varanasi, as were well my tonic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from the palace. You can see how this man, Siddhartha, develop this yearning for freedom. So who knows? Maybe celebration will spawn a whole lot of little Buddhas. Many other, these are the most standards of build up enclaves. But there are many other enclaves that we, we create for ourselves, you know, through our actions. Uh, I think it was a month ago or so that I was in the waiting room of my 
eye doctor in New York City, Upper West Side, Columbia, near Columbia, Presbyterian. And I had the opportunity to watch the actions of a little girl, I don't know the age, could it could have been five, it's my guess. She, she seemed to have some behavioral peculiarity, imbalance, if you wish. Interestingly enough, this peculiarity, maybe it wasn't peculiarity, maybe it was us peculiar, because it made her very sociable. So she went around befriending people, and she did actually spend a lot of time befriending an old man who was sitting nearby. Not talking, just, you know, gesture. Close to him, touching his knees. You could see her mother was, was crazy. She couldn't take it. She was absolutely agonizing over that. Tried to pull her out. And then she went back again. And, and of course, it would have been a scene. So her mother chose to leave. Better having no visit to the eye doctor, I guess, than letting her daughter be sociable. So the they both, both left, of course, yeah. So that's another way of ending up stranded, deprived of medical care. And, of course, I mean, in a more subtle way, there are all kinds of devices that we use to strand ourselves through iPods, listening to music and stuff, and, and laptops and the subway and the uh, train, Metro North, whatever, uh, cell phones, whatever, not being where we are, but being in a, in a chosen environment. Sometimes a chosen environment is music, of course. Interestingly enough, I was reading, I think it is in the New York Times again, about a um, certain device that you can rate, rent when you go to a concert in, in New York City, actually. Forgot which, uh, could be a Carnegie Hall, I don't know. One of the major concert places in New York City. You get this uh, Blackberry-like device. And when the concert starts, the Blackberry feels, or maybe you program it to do that, feels what's playing or knows what's playing, and then provides you with a description of what is it that you're hearing. So here there is 
an island in the intellect to protect yourself from the impact of the music that you took all the trouble to go there and even paid uh, expensively to. But you don't want to open yourself up to it. So anytime this gets a little complicated, where should I be at? You go and look at your device and it tells you what this is about. I'm tempted to try it. <laughs> so this and many other things I call constructing islands in time, with a real time, sorry, in, in space, with a real space or virtual space. But we also construct islands in time. We are less aware of that. First of all, we believe that time is something real. We give time an external authority, while well, in fact it's nothing but a construction of our mind. Any good physicist to tell you that. After Einstein, of course. One way, basic way, that we construct these islands in time is by parceling out time into the time that is mine and the time that's not mine. Say we are sitting. And suddenly we let, let ourselves open as some people were describing in the groups, and of course we all know that. Let ourselves open to a certain place where time doesn't move, where there's timelessness. And if we bring into this the timeless, the, the island of time mentality, boy, this is threatening. We panic. We feel we must regain control. And so the mind quickly goes to the past, goes to the future, goes to wherever time is ticking planning, remembering, whatever. And if we still feel that this islands of past and future are not solid enough, then there's this deep yearning for that. For the bell that's going to indicate, hey, I'm back in my own time now. Don't have to be in the retreat time. So we, we, we do the same thing at home, even more so. We engage in activities and planning 
And of course, it's, a, it's very appropriate to engage in activities and planning, of course. But we do it beyond what's required. We do it impelled by this additional thirst for constructing our time so that I feel safe in this time, I feel safe in that time, I feel safe in that time. There's no time that somebody else can manage. And if we still don't succeed well enough, you know what you do? We kill it. We engage in killing time activities. We kill time. So it's clearly an, our enemy somewhere in the recesses of our mind. Killing time, getting busy, however it is, we regain control of our turf, of our island, of the time that we consider is mine. No sharks swimming in there. Given what we often forget, that our life is finite, is transient, we also partition time into my time, that which falls within my lifetime, and that which doesn't. In fact, you know, this idea of uh, duration of my life has seemed to me to be so irrevocable. But, you know, this, this is a real thing. Until I began to undermine it a little bit, it ain't that solid, you know. Feels very solid, but it ain't. I, I know that whenever I look at historical events, events that have a chronology, I draw a sharp line in 1926, the year I was born. Before 1926, it doesn't concern me. <laughs> After 1926, oh yeah, that was uh, during my tenure, during my shift. It's part of my island of time. It may not be something that I welcome, but it's in this island, if I uh, in the island of time, of, of the lifetime. That's, the, that's an, see, this is a uh, com complicated archipelago. This is the big island of the archipelago. <laughs> Anything outside, dismissed. Anything inside? Yeah, well, uh, okay, okay, I look at it. The interesting thing, I like this metaphor because it, it has a, it can be carried further, the island of my lifetime. You know, there are these very extraordinary islands, probably there are many of them, although we don't hear about many which are called volcanic islands. 
which suddenly, at some point, emerge from the bottom of the sea. Then they stay there for a while, and lo and behold, sometimes they vanish again. And the metaphor is rich because it invites us to see the island of our lifetime as something that doesn't really disappear. It only disappears from obvious sight. There is, it comes from the bottom of the sea, pushed by a volcano. <laughs> okay, let me say it by an orgasm <laughs> of a volcano. And so it was there before, it just gets reshaped. And then eventually, it goes back to the bottom of the sea. I like to see my life that way. And this is one of the themes I'm going to touch on on September 8th at New York Inside when I talk about life and death. So, just to sum up, uh, there's not the whole story, but there are a few examples and a few metaphors. What I've said so far is that we have contrived these islands, uh, these enclaves in time or space to sequester ourselves in them, to cast ourselves away in them. And of course, they form a, an archipelago, a set of islands. And then wisdom comes and tells us if we really watch what the consequences of that are, that these islands did not bring the peace or the freedom that they were supposed to bring. They have been, in fact, largely, although occasionally useful, I agree, occasionally useful, occasionally we have to seclude ourselves in these islands. We're secluding ourselves in this room here now, but in the long run, this tactic, this strategy is counterproductive. Wisdom tells us to ditch this technique in most, not all, but in most circumstances. How do we do that? How do we wean, wean ourselves from insularity? It's not that it's necessary to dismantle 
the islands we have constructed. And I repeat, sometimes these islands are effective, are appropriate. They allow us to take a break uh, from things that we couldn't take otherwise. Sure enough, child in his own room, in, in the home, that island was certainly appropriate, up to a point, of course. But to use them to do away with all the turbulence of life, to do like the town of celebration in Walt Disney or the Buddha's Siddhartha's father in, in the Buddha history is too much to allow. Nothing is to incarcerate ourselves. What we need to do is to explore the confines. Once we are in the islands, and we are in many islands, explore the confines. To, to, if, it's, if we think of a physical island, to just start by sticking our, sticking our toe into the water, feeling the flow of life, not pretending it's not there, just, just acknowledging. Come to understand that our compulsion to cast ourselves away comes from fear, from our fears, not from life itself. When this understanding seeps in and we recognize fears not as our ally but as our enemy, then it becomes possible to begin to allow ourselves to look outside our box, outside our island. To look outside the habitual contrasting between I, me, mine, and what's not I, me, mine. Come to see that whoever I, I am, whoever I am, mine, call it my DNA if you want to be technical in one way, call it whatever it is, my essence, come to see and feel that this essence is not a separate essence, it's been borrowed. My body is borrowed from the food I eat. Otherwise, look at the difference it makes, what you eat and the body itself, it's clear. My speech, is my, my speech, my thoughts, are borrowed from the culture I come from, from the books I read, from the conversations I have, from the inquiries in this hall. My capacity to love is learned from those who love me. I come to see that the island of me, like the volcanic islands, comes from the earth, 
and goes back to the earth, to the earth, to the bottom of the sea, and goes back to the bottom of the sea. I'm no more separate from the rest of life than a drop of water is separate from the body of water. The Buddha, who was great at metaphors, put it this way. He said, human life is like a line drawn on water. Like a line drawn on water. And so we begin to see that beyond these islands and clays we box ourselves in, there's a much wider space where life truly happens. I'm controlled, yes, but reality is not controllable, it's not under control. A boundless ocean where insularity finds no footing. Once again, I can't resist on Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. And I can see, where is it? The poem is called in Spanish, No es necesario. It is not necessary. necessary to whistle to be alone to live in the dark out in the crowd under the wide sky we remember our own selves the intimate self the naked self the only self who knows how his nails grow who knows how his silence is made and his own poor, poor words. There's the public Pedro seen in the light, an adequate Bernice, but inside, underneath age and clothing, we still don't have a name. We're quite different. Eyes don't close only in order to sleep, but do so as not to see the same sky. We soon grow tired, and as if they were sounding the bell to call us to school, we return to the hidden flower, to the, to the bone, the half-hidden root, and there we suddenly are. We are the pure 
forgotten self, the true being within the four walls of our singular skin between the two points of living and dying. Let me make one thing very clear. The four walls of our singular skin are not walls that separate us. On the contrary, are how we can touch each other, how we can touch the world, are the points of contact with the world. And the two points of living and dying, those two are points of connection. Not different than the periods that separate sentences in a text. They separate, but they really connect one sentence with the next. So, we are, Neruda is saying, part of the stream of life. And there, we suddenly are. We are the pure, forgotten self, the true being, within the four walls of our singular skin, between the two points of living and dying. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.